So uh, the title of the talk this evening is uh, Perspectives on Pain. <clears throat> and I uh, really appreciated Narayan's uh, definition of wise effort last night when she said, uh, it's the willingness to meet the here and now. <clears throat> the willingness to meet the here and now. Now we have to be very careful here because really the whole crux of wise practice and unwise practice is met right in that particular phrase. So I just want to explore it just for a second before I move into the substance of the talk tonight. Because the willingness to meet the here and now assumes that effort is needed to meet the here and now, right? But is that true? And, I've, and I'm, what I'm doing is sort of guiding us on a quest of questions that each one of us should undertake whenever we assume a practice. Because if you make the wrong decisions, even at this initial, uh, this initial phase, you'll find your whole pa- practice to be skewed. So what do I mean by that, you see? The willingness to meet the here and now, is it, is it does it take effort, does it take effort to meet the here and now? Well, it seems to. It seems to take the, the sense of me bringing myself back. So in a very superficial way, we could say, yes, it takes effort for me to, to come into the present. <clears throat> but if you really look at where you're going, or where you think you're off, away from the present, at some phase of your practice, you'll see that wherever you were off, or assumed you were off, was really happening within the present. That there is no context that could possibly occur, no event, no experience, that could possibly occur outside of the here and now. And that we just think, literally, our way out of the here and now, and the thought captures the imagination, so it seems as if we are outside the present, and we are trying then to struggle back to get into the present when we were never lost from it to begin with. Right? So what does that mean? I know that may be obscure to some of you, but just follow me for a second because I think you'll see how this opens up to a very different kind of practice. So if we assume that we're never outside of the present, which is the truth, even though it may not seem like that to our individual interpretations of, of uh, distraction and etc., if we ever ask ourselves where the distraction takes us, you'll find that wherever it takes us is happening here and now. Therefore, does it take effort to come into the here and now? Well, the answer would then be no. Which means that you would have to base your practice not on the effort to come back to somewhere where you've never gone, strayed from, but rather to relax into that place. Relax, because the tension that seems to take us away from the here and now is the tension of willful effort. So the more effort I apply, the more I 
confirm the fact that I'm somewhere other than where I need to be instead of really understanding that I've never left where I wanted to go. And so then the nature of effort changes from trying to get myself from some place where I've strayed back to the place where I want to be to relaxing into the place where I've never left. You get a sense of that? The reason that is so important that it sets a tone for our entire practice. And this sense of relaxing into the present is the clearest and most direct route obscuring nothing, releasing the tension that seems to have kept us away from the here and now. The tension is the tension of the unconscious. The unconscious trying to control the conscious mind. One way we can frame the spiritual journey is the journey from being unconscious to being fully conscious. Right? So that's the way the journey moves from a lot of unconscious, behind-the-scenes activity that we're not aware of to a full conscious display knowing fully what's taking place in this moment. And therefore, energy that's assumed to be outside of the here and now must be coming from the unconscious because I'm unconscious to the fact that it's actually happening now. And therefore, it's allowing the unconscious to control and direct the conscious attention. It doesn't make any sense. And we'll fall into the realm of unskillful, ultimately unskillful practice. So it's that kind of scrutiny that each one of us must invest within our practice to see where what what's going on here no matter what we hear no matter what books we read no matter what textual references there may be it always needs our further questioning to decipher what is true within it And the way Narayan framed it was beautiful because it's just the willingness to meet what is in front of our eyes. Just the willingness, which means the willingness is I'm, when I'm unconscious, I don't have that willingness. I don't want to see it. Just to be willing means I want to come out of the unconscious into a conscious attention and meet this moment. And that's all. And so there's this beautiful simpatico. It gets very simple. It gets very simple when you cut all the controlling mechanisms for what we do to try to be conscious, all of our attempts to control our consciousness, all of that is coming from the unconscious because the sense of I is an unconscious tendency within us. And the sense of I is trying to control its root into consciousness. But it's unconscious. So how can that happen, you see? So suddenly, the rug 
from our need to control and determine and to be willfully exerting our effort forward gets undermined. Why and how? Through our a willingness to ask very difficult questions. So what we begin to ask instead is what's behind here being unseen, pushing me forward? What is behind the scenes, backstage, that I'm not aware of, which means it's unconscious, that is attempting to control my conscious movement forward? What's back there? What am I not aware of? Not what's out on the stage. What's out on the stage is can be seen. What motivates my efforts? You see? Oftentimes we are not aware of what motivates our efforts forward. And it usually has some resemblance of self-control. Some energy or assumption some opinion or judgment, some self-statement of I that is acting backstage to compel and propel us forward. And we turn or surrender our practice to those unconscious tendencies, never asking questions about what is controlling My decision here, where are my decisions based upon? What's moving me forward here? And so this is a very, very important questioning for each of us to assert. Because we want to open the whole thing up. That's what it means to awaken. The backstage has to become the back. Behind the curtain has to be coming. The whole thing has to be opened up. And much of us, much of us, much of our tendencies are driven by unassumed, unquestioned parts of ourselves. We assume the sense of me as a given. We never question it. We just assume that whatever I'm, decision, whatever I want, whatever motivation I have, that's where we go. That's how we start this thing. That's the direction we take. But we don't ask questions about the very nature of the sense of I who's making that decision. And so it remains unconscious to us. And then compels us forward from that unconscious tendency. And we think that somehow being driven in that way that we will soon wake up at some point. And it just keeps spinning around and around because the unconscious does not want to become conscious. It requires a different level of integrity, a different level of commitment and intentionality from us. To see what's behind the stage requires more than simple work ethic. And the key word in this is the willingness. I want to. Because I see that when I don't, I just go in circles. I want to know what's back there. 
And even though I sense that it could be troubling, certainly confusing, it's not as if it's not back there anyway, that my observation of it isn't going to create it. It's already created back there. I'm just refusing to look at what's already back there. So it's not, it's just adding tension to the problem. The tension of not wanting to see. And that's why it seems to take effort because I don't really want to see it. I've got to force myself to see it. When the real solution to the problem is just being willing, is admitting I don't want to see it and seeing that. And it's okay, so this is really difficult. I'm catching a glimpse of it from time to time. It's, I feel something playing itself forth. What is that? You get curious. Curiosity is what is the path to wakefulness. Well, what is what's back there? What's doing that? What's what is that? Not with a strategy of stomping it out or controlling it or suppressing it, which is all this, but just wanting to see it, wanting to get a sense of what's it, what is it? What's doing that? What's compelling me forward in this life? You know, it's just amazing when you, when you start opening that back room up, the assumptions we've made, the philosophies, the strategies, the context out of what we've created here, all mentally fabricated. How we understand the world, the, what's our disposition, what we take the world to be what we take ourselves to be within the world. All of that is unconscious to us. So our whole perceptual field contains laces of the unconscious tendency. And if we just struggle, you know, and there's a time when everyone's practice assumes that kind of rigor, rigor and a and tension necessary just to f- know that we have thoughts and to be able to steady our attention, which is for a while, for a phase of practice, what we need to do. But then we stay with the strengthening sense of self-controlled practice because there's a real strong sense of me being in control of my spiritual journey. And that gets the muscles of that get like a weightlifter, you get very proud of the muscles of our spiritual journey, self-imposed, self-created muscle. You forget the original intent and the reason we're even undertaking this. And that's why the direction this journey goes must be understood from the beginning because it's not about muscle building. And the Buddha said it very simply. He said, I just teach one thing. Suffering and the end of suffering. And if we followed that lead, we would realize that we were creating more tension for ourselves 
by not seeing the unconscious than by seeing it. And that tension is the definition of pain and suffering and struggle. And therefore, the Buddha's simple equation of struggle to the end of struggle, of wait a minute, something, I must be doing something wrong because my practice just seems to get more intensely or more subtly involved in struggle. Wanting to see that, trying to force myself, all of that, I focused practice. And then there's wise orientation. When you say, okay, first of all, very important question to ask from that simple Buddhist equation, I teach only one thing. Very important question is to ask, do I feel deserving of not struggling? Because much of our tendencies to maintain the struggle is because we don't feel we deserve not to struggle. And if I spoke to you in depth, many of us would give me many reasons why you need to struggle in your life. The parents you've had, the problems of your narrative, all the difficulties that you've imposed upon the world and the mistakes you've made and the penance that you must do and the harm you've caused. So we can't make this too easy because the, where, where is the trail of tears? So I have to have some reason. To, so what most of us like to do, we're kind of laying it out here tonight. It's my style. Is we like to practice, but we don't like to arrive. Right? So I've been practicing 20 years. And I have two sheets of all the retreats I've done. I'm laughing with you because I was in the middle of all that too. So that, that gives us nobility. It gives us just cause. And it becomes its own, it becomes its own goal. And uh, I've been spiritual journey for 35 years and I've done this and that and I've gone here and there and I've known these teachers and I've, and, uh, you know, there's a kind of nobility in that. Wow, you've done all that? Yeah. You knew him? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so we delay. We delay it. We delay. We postpone it. Because we don't feel deserving of the resolution of the problem. We feel deserving of the suffering, but we don't feel deserving of not suffering. 
And so to ask yourself very deeply and earnestly whether this is what you want. Because based upon that, you will flush out your true intention of of your spiritual life. And some of us have envisioned it to be such a long, long path, you know, eons of lifetime and birds that carry silk scarves across mountaintops and wear them down and eons and all those images that we've heard. And you've cried more tears than all the oceans in the world. You know, it's like, oh God, I've got what, and all I've cried is, you know, like a teacup. Of <laughs> can't possibly be finished with it. <laughs> when do you want to quit, people? When's enough enough? When is it? When's it, when's it, when's it over? When's, it, when's enough? How much is enough? How much? And how much have you already done? Hmm? How many lifetimes? Yeah, you got them counted? I don't. So when's enough? And at some point, it's enough. Have we struggled enough? We've all struggled, but the real question is, have we struggled enough? Why does it take so long? Why does it seem to take so long? It's because we have mixed intentions. We start doing practices that feed the very ground of our satisfaction, of our worldly contentment, of our excitement, of our entertainment. We develop the capacity of mind to have such a sharp and razor-pointed focus that feels empowering, self-empowering, egoic-empowering, but empowering. And I've never felt empowering. I've never felt empowered in my life. I felt the lack of that. And so I'm going this direction. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Buddhist message was. A sharpness of attention that's so clear. Yeah, I'm in my fourth jhana, fifth jhana sometimes, but I slip back and forth, fourth and fifth. Sometimes I... And then there is this. So to ask ourselves from time to time to weigh in on that very simple equation of the Buddhas that this is a practice from suffering to the end of suffering. In the course of my practice, has my suffering decreased? Am I struggling less? And am I applying, do I understand the nature of struggle? 
to understand why and how I create my own struggle. Do I apply that to my life? Do I live it? And this is really an interesting one because so often people, I see people during the retreat, I often see them when they come home, and they're often more miserable, more cantankerous, more uh, irritable when they come out of retreat because they've lost that kind of special environment, you know. When the whole point, that's, that's increasing struggle. That's increasing one's problem because you're not within the context of where you want to be. Your mind doesn't look like it did when you were on retreat. And so we increase the very struggle we were supposed to learn about on the retreat, after retreat, because it's not fitting our priorities. Irritable or judgmental and opinionated, so nothing's really working. And what, and you know, it's like turn down that noise, turn off the radio. The house should be quiet. When the, what, what it looks like to end struggle looks very different. It looks like malleability and just shifting with whatever circumstances. So that the circumstances aren't what govern our behavior. If we become more irrit- irritated, that's the indication that we are being governed by circumstances. But the whole teaching is to free ourselves from circumstances. So we look at how the retreat leaves us in what condition and that's how we know whether we've been applying the right methodology or not do I apply it do I live it So let's look at different forms and expressions of suffering that each of us in the course of a week will engage in and how to understand those in relationship to the effort that needs to be applied or the questions we need to ask in relationship to those forms and expressions of struggle. And the first one, let's just take it from the Buddhist literature, you know, that struggle or suffering arises out of desire. Fair enough. But see, I mean, because we had to capture this very quickly, we didn't get all the elaboration. And so we just say, okay, I know what I'm desiring. And so when I feel desire, I think that there's something wrong with that because that's going to lead to suffering. So I have a built-in idea and judgment of desire. So that's the first thing, is that I'm already off base, you might say, when the the desire does arise. But then I don't really know anything, but I know the topographical feel of desire. I know how it sits in my mind. I know how it feels in the body and and the tension that's imposed within a desire. But I don't really understand why would it cause suffering? You see, we've got to go deeper. That equation is too simplistic. And the Buddha didn't have time, or he, I'm sure he did when he was alive, but we just tried to capture the... It's like uh, the comic books, instead of reading the real, you know, the, the, the real 
300-page book, you just read the comics, the comic section of it, and then did your book report from that. Well, he gave us just the, the brief outline. So what is a desire, you see? What is that? Now, in your practice, we should ask that question because it's kind of fundamental to whether we struggle or not. And what you'll find is something very interesting. If you look at what a desire is in itself, not just what it is topographically, what, it's, what it feels like as an emotion, you'll find that there is an issue of time in a desire. That we want something we don't have or we wouldn't want it if we had it, right? So we are projecting in our imagination a wish an aspiration, an expectation for something that we do not have here and now. Now that's fantasy. So we have left the here and now for the fantasy of our wish. And any time you have wish and wish fulfillment, you have a conflict between what the reality is and what I want the reality to be. And that's the nature of time, is that it sets us up to be in conflict. Because it's an imaginative response of the future, which hasn't occurred yet. And so the desire is in the time element. And unless we know that, we just keep being, you know, judgmental of a desire when it arises. But when you realize that it's taking us out of the here and now into another reference point that has no bearing upon the here and now except as an imaginative thought then you say oh this is ridiculous why would I want to do why would I follow that it just hurts and it collapses in on itself and where does it bring us back here and now not that the desire was happening outside of the here and now, because it wasn't. But we were projecting it outside of the here and now as future. So there was nothing wrong with desire itself. What was wrong was with the attachment to the time element within desire. And that caught us and had to slip out of the present, forgetting the present because it isn't sufficient, doesn't have what I want the future to contain. And so I don't have any... Why spend time in the present? It doesn't hold what I think the future will. Even though the future is happening here and now. Do you see that? There aren't many many heads that are shaking, so I'm, I'm a little wary of... <laughs> Just stay with me. Just take it in and figure it out. You can just, just welcome it in. I'm not leading you astray. I wouldn't do that. Another way that we slip into a, an unconscious frame of reference. See, that's unconscious. When we think that the future is true and not held within the here and now, that's unconscious. We're being unconscious to what is actually happening, which is that the future is a thought that is happening here and now. 
So the unconscious tendency is driving the need for the grasping of the desire. So if we're going to make the unconscious conscious, we have to make the thought of the desire conscious and know that it is a coming into and through this present moment. And when you do so, you begin to look at it very differently than when you keep it unconsciously tucked in as the movement of time. Okay, so now I've now I've now it's beginning to really make sense to me, you see. Because every time I move away from the here and now into an unconscious belief in the future or past, I suffer. Fair enough. So now it strengthens my willingness to interface with the here and now. Because I see if I don't, I hurt. And I don't want to hurt. So now I'm, I really feel like now I I'm, I'm really have my feet on the floor of where this thing is going, where this is moving. But we still continue to create lots of situations in which it doesn't feel like a desire is occurring, but there's a lot of suffering going on in there anyway. So what else is happening? What's another component of our pain? And I think you'll find that much of your pain comes from your narrative. From the context of the belief that your life is not being lived up to the storyline of its mandate. I should be, I must be, I have to be, what's the matter with me, how come I can never, something's wrong with me. All of those are narrative-induced stories carried throughout our lifetime with embedded assumptions about our weaknesses, our frailties, that we try to hide from the world and then try to overcompensate in activity so that the world won't see what we believe ourselves to be. So if we feel unworthy, I try to compensate by showing you that I'm perfect. Hiding you from the sense that I feel I'm really unworthy. That's pain. And so we have to do a whole study and exploration of the narrative and storyline that we're giving our lives. What is all this? What, I mean, we have a story about everything and everyone. It's all defined. It's all insulated. It's all history. It all has a past. I've known you since... Hi, it's nice to see you. This is the third time we've been together. Nice, great, wonderful. All of that. And every time we invest in deeper story of past and future, the more encased we become in time, where we can't see anything looking out of our eyes except the concepts of what we have known life to be. So where is the here and now? And we believe in that context. We believe in the past history of everything we see. That's the definition of suffering. Because nothing's alive. Everything's a karmic residue. 
Everything is laden with the history I have with it, with my remorse and my burden, my grief. Everything reminds me of what I've always been. And you can look in the storyline of your narrative and you'll certainly find what you've always been. Very clearly described in there are your own characteristics and your flaws. And since that's the only, that's the only input we really listen to, that has the controlling influence of what we see and what we believe. And we look out from those past shrouded eyes and we're held encased in that history with each other, with ourselves, with our own beliefs, with our assumptions, with our philosophies. But boy, do we practice diligently to try to break through that. But we won't look at it. We won't listen to it. We won't really want to tune ourselves into what we're saying because we believe it. We feel we're deserving of those assumptions. We feel we've lived them and that's really who I am. And so I'm, that's, I'm, I'm not going there. I'll try to manage it in a different way. And so the past is unassailable. It remains frozen as a descriptive image of what we give life. The very definition we give things in each other, in ourselves. And there we are. And we somehow expect us to awaken when we are unwilling to perceive from that degree, to perceive that degree of pain. to make the unconscious conscious. That's what this practice and how the direction that this practice moves. And then there's the pain of self-formation, more subtle, both in terms of my own finger-wagging shame of how I keep myself pigeonholed in a particular image and self-description. But also the fact that through my willingness to be righteous and reactive, I can feel on top of the world. I can feel like I'm somebody for once. And so I proclaim myself through my reactivity, never mind that that very reactivity is the source of our pain. But for once, I can feel as if I am empowered enough to have something to say. So do I look at that reaction, at that self-formation? No. I just wait for it to move off into the more sublimed states of mind that come with meditation. But the whole of the Buddhist teaching, all of it, from impermanence right on through, what it was meant to do was to show us the limitation of form, of formed expression. It says, 
divest your attention, your treasures, so to speak, from form. It's not worth it. It's not going to satisfy us. It's moving on. It's leaving you wishing for its return. But it's not going to return. It's moving on. And for us to disobey that calling is a sure sign that we are locked into the unconscious when we are not moving along with life, but stuck in a particular relationship, usually a past relationship with it. The Buddha says there's something else. It's not complicated. It's as close as the air we breathe. It's as gentle as the softest breeze. It's as encompassing as the space we live within. But as long as we're formating our life through information, 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 we'll never see it. But his whole teaching was to wake us up out of being in form. But do we listen? We just continue to work this thing in a direction according to our unconscious, which is more formation, not less, not questioning forms, but still trying to subtly find the form that works, that lasts, that sustains itself, that I can actually hook up and rest my soothing soul. And so we begin to sense as we go through these different layers of struggle that the real redemption lies in the present. It's always been said, it's just that we didn't know what the present was or how big it was. It's not small. It's vast. It's infinite. But it's only when we wake up to what we do within the present to obscure it so that we don't know that it's vast. And then we can live in that vastness. And the way we obscure it is that the past, our past associations, our past beliefs, our opinions, all of the stuff of the past, comes through the present continuously. Karmic formations. And we believe so strongly in the past that we, the present means nothing to us. It's the past that we're trying to work out moment to moment. This particular display the mind is having, the particular emotion that's arising, the particular memory I am having, 
the grief that's accumulated, the this, the that. All of that is the stuff of the past that's coming through the present. The present doesn't mean anything because it doesn't hold. It holds everything, but itself can't be held. And we want to hold it and make it our, under our control, which is unconscious. And at some point there's a switch that happens. Where the past means nothing. It's the space, it's that which holds the past, which is the present. Not the content of the present. The content of the present is formed from my past descriptions, my past memories of the present. And as the the residue is extinguished and the present opens in all of its glory, then we know ourselves for the first time, what we really are. The deep abiding joy the infinite space. And now we know the end of suffering. And it is as close as the breath we breathe. How could it not be? Because it has always been upon us how could it not have been? We just looked away. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as we sit, let us call forth the simplest thing. Not our inward turmoil, not our unresolved tensions, not our undeserving self-image, but the stillness that holds all. Let us know that because that is truly a conscious moment. The willingness to meet the here and now, that is all. Never turning away.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.